We are going to cover a lot of turf this morning in terms of Matthew. So if you're with, with us in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus in the life of his ministry has just suffered a personal setback. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and at the end of chapter 13, the town of Nazareth rejects him because they can't imagine that Jesus Christ is actually the King of Kings, the Messiah, because they measure him by what they know, and they know him as a little boy that ran around their village hometown. They, they know his mother, they know his father, and they, they, they cannot wrap their minds around the possibility that Jesus is all that he claims to be. So much so that the Gospels record they want to kill him. They take him to a nearby cliff edge and try to shove him off and kill him. That's got to sting. Like just, just knowing your hometown, your neighbors, the kids you played stickball with, want to kill you and will not believe you. Matthew then records not only was Jesus rejected, but the message of Jesus' kingdom which John the Baptist preached, was rejected too. And you see that by Herod's execution of Jesus for preaching against his immoral marriage to his sister-in-law. We come into chapter 14 now, Jesus having suffered these two setbacks, both the death of John the Baptist as well as his rejection of the hometown. Matthew turns to three successive Points of ministry success, we could maybe call them. And he does so to present Jesus Christ and to help us understand who he is. And I think in many ways to validate conclusions Matthew is going to lead us to both in chapter 16 and chapter 28. And we'll get to those in just a moment. But I think Matthew is pressing us to understand the significance, and I'll say this. This is stealing this from Sinclair Ferguson. The significance of accepting the whole Christ, all of who he is. Jesus Christ is not simply a rescuer, but he is a rescuer. He is not simply just a savior from the penalty of sin. He is the king, and we should acknowledge him as the king and all of the implications of what it means for him to be king. I think in this passage particularly, there is significance in what he rescues us from in light of the Garden of Eden. So if you were to go back to the Garden of Eden and remember Adam and Eve's sin, they sin by eating. Then the curse is given, and it's a curse on, on multiple different levels, but one of the primary effects of sin, God says, when you eat of this fruit, you will die. And so the consequence of sin is that all of humankind now has a death penalty hanging over us. And every sickness, every disease, every wrinkle, every spot on our skin is nothing more than the whisper of death that's coming for us. But not only is death the promised result and the curse, there's also the curse on the ground. So now Adam and all mankind have a ground or a nature that is hostile to us. And in the garden, the representation is weeds and thorns and thistles, that we are now going to have nature that is not compliant and friendly to us, but, but it must be brought under subjection. So now we have to do things like spray pesticides. We have to, we have to press against the weeds with all sorts of, of herbicides. 
in order to grow crops. We have to irrigate. We have to fight against the way the earth has now made it hard for us to see fruitfulness in crops. I think Jesus preaches to us by his activity that he is turning back the curse. We're going to look in first the feeding of the 5,000, then Jesus walking on water, and finally healing people who are sick in Gennesaret. So I'm going to read this whole section together, and then we're going to try to walk through what I think Matthew is pressing for us to conclude from these accounts. Verse 13 of, of Matthew 14 says this, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go in the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. He said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they ate and were satisfied, and it took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So we're looking at fifteen to 20,000 people that Jesus fed in this miracle. So that miracle there, Jesus feeds those who are hungry. But verse 22 says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way away from the land and beaten by the waves for the wind was against them and in the fourth watch of the night the romans had four watches they so they, they broke 6 p.m to 6 a.m in four segment times and so it's probably 3 a.m to 6 a.m so th think the dark hours of the early morning so in that fourth watch he came to them walking on the sea but when the disciples saw him on the sea they were terrified and said it is a ghost the greek would say phantasm and they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. The Greek would literally say, I am. It's a pretty powerful echo of the burning bush moment. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. Verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus, but when he saw the wind... He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. When the man of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And thus we have Matthew's presentation of our incredible king. 
What are we to take from these accounts that are linked together? In fact, Mark makes it clear in the account of Jesus that when Jesus gets into the boat after the storm, after walking on water, after Peter's moment of faithlessness, he looks at the disciples and says, didn't you learn from the feeding? So Mark and Jesus connect together these miracles as being significantly linked. Now, what we see in the feeding of the 5,000 should have caused the disciples not to be afraid in the boat. They should have been able to extrapolate from seeing Jesus do something in that feeding to that moment where they're terrified by the storm and they see Jesus coming to not respond in fear, but instead respond with hearts filled with faith. And you see the sweetness of Jesus going to Gennesaret, a town out of the way, probably filled with Gentiles, and healing everyone who comes to him simply by letting them touch the hem of his robe. And everyone who does it gets healed. So as we consider this text before us, I think we see at least in these three miracles, three different emphatic claims that Jesus is the rescuer. Let me just say it this way. I think Jesus shows himself to be the rescuer of the weak by fulfilling what he compassionately sees the need to be. You think about the disciples here. They they have compassion on the people. They see they're all hungry. And they say, hey, listen, we got some real needs here, Jesus. Let's send these people away so they can go and get food. So the disciples have, have a recognition of a need. And they say, these people can solve it themselves. Let's send them back to communities. They can go find some food, buy it, purchase it, and they'll be taken care of. Jesus' response is pretty interesting. He tells the disciples, you take care of it. And at the least, perhaps, we see Jesus showing that there's accountability in a leader for those who follow him. And the disciples say, hey, fend for yourselves. You're hungry, fix it. I mean, can you imagine what it would cost in today's age to feed 20,000 people on the spot? So imagine that we do some outreach event and we have 20,000 people there. We realize they're hungry and it's like, hey, guys, let's pay for their food. I know what I would immediately be thinking. Our church budget isn't going to handle that. You want, you, want, you want to put up the money? Go ahead. So imagine the disciples when Jesus says, you feed them. Like, this is going to be an immense amount of work and money and challenge, and it makes the disciples immediately recognize they don't have the capacity to fix the problem. They may have a heart of compassion, they see the need, they recognize the need, and they go, and we can't do anything about it. But who can? Do you think Jesus asked them to do it because he thought they had the capacity to do it, or he wanted them to recognize they didn't? So Jesus tells them to bring them what they do have. And this is just sweet. Five barley loaves. Think dinner rolls. And two salted pickled fish, maybe. Here's what we got, Jesus. 20,000 people. How are we going to make this work? Everyone gets a crumb. Now, again, I, I think at the least we can see Jesus preaching his overwhelming capacity to care for his people. I mean, I look at the disciples, and I kind of feel like this is me with every sermon. I got a couple crumbs. Jesus better do something with this. Because how in the world does God use broken, weak, 
sinful disciples like us? And the answer is because he's king. He uses little things because he is the king. And so in this moment, you have people who have needs. They're legitimate needs. And I think there's, there's a sense in which Jesus, by fulfilling the needs here, echoes the prophets of the past. What happened in the wilderness with food? God supplied through his servant Moses. You see in the famine with Elijah, the widow of Zarephath, that, that God supplies through the miraculous work of supplying oil and flour for her and her son. So this sweet widow who's not Jewish at all is given food in the middle of a famine and provided for. And here we have hungry people and Jesus shows once again that as God's servant king, he provides for the needs of his people because he has compassion on them. Sometimes I think, and maybe it's just the way I was raised, I'm a little bit heartless with all sorts of things. My kids smash their finger, I'm like, suck it up, be quiet, close your mouth, your crying's annoying. Okay, is your finger broke? No, go play. I'm not quite that heartless, but sometimes I kind of feel that way. And I think sometimes maybe in our, in our world that's messed up, compassion is misguided. Just thinking through this, do you realize that right now something like 25,000 people a day in this globe are dying of starvation? That is just stunning to me. Most of us need to go on a diet because we are anything but starving. And we have so much food and so much affluence in this country that we miss how precious a promise this is that Jesus preaches to his followers that I can care for you. The world is cursed and sin presses the world against us. And so in Africa, and some of these poor continents, there are people who literally will die because they don't have bread. And Jesus shows us the curse is something he is adequate as king to rescue us from. He is able to pursue his compassion. I can only imagine that over this course of this year, some of us felt so helpless as loved ones were lost. Just this last week, we had some sweet family members suffer with the tragedy of seeing a, a sweet beloved one pass away. And we have no capacity to stop death. We have no capacity to halt it. And so to sit on the, uh, by the bedside of someone who's dying and having compassion for their suffering, and being able to not rescue them. It makes us feel helpless, impotent, and needy. The real tragedy is that we don't feel like that most other times. Because we always are. So Jesus heals these 5,000, or he heals, he, he feeds these 5,000 men, all the women and children as well. Apparently they only counted and I think there's something of a message in the 12 baskets left over, don't you? All the disciples, all they have at the beginning is five dinner rolls and two gross fish. Fish are always gross, so that adjective can always go in front of it. Two gross fish. 
And they're left over after serving all of these people, after Jesus rescues them from their hunger, they're left with more than enough for themselves. And the sweetness of serving the king is that often when he works through his people, his people, in fact, feel like the biggest servants, but are the most blessed and enriched by his grace. Every one of them has a heaping basket of gross fish and barley bread. How great is that? After serving others, they have an overwhelming supply so that they can throw away all the fish and eat the bread. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. Certainly in an agricultural society that surrounds a lake where fishing was part of their life, the, the, the joy of God's provision was clearly preached to these men. Jesus Christ is king over all. And he shows it to his people. Did you notice right in the middle what he does right before he breaks the bread? He prays. Notice what he does right after he sends his disciples away. Look with me in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. We'll come back to that. Verse 23. After he dismissed the crowd, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Assuming that It was towards evening when he fed the 5,000, and assuming that the walking on the water didn't take too long, we have maybe six or more hours of prayer time where Jesus just alone is seeking the presence of his Father. I don't think Matthew includes that just for color. It's not backstory, so we find it more interesting and engaging. He's telling us something about the King of Kings. His ministry is done under the grace of the Father and according to the will of the Father. And that his pursuit of the Father's presence, if anyone didn't need it, it was Jesus. It's something all of Jesus' people need. When Jesus calls his disciples, because this is where this is going, we are called to do what? We are called to follow Jesus. So do you see something in Jesus' example here that we should be following? Like, he starts this miracle by praying. He concludes this interlude between feeding these thousands and thousands and walking on water by spending time pursuing the Father's presence without any distractions of disciples or crowd. He sends the disciples away, he leaves the crowd, and he spends hours praying. Now, I think we all want to know, what did you pray about? What was the content of your prayer? If it was important, it would be there. We just know he pursued his father's will, his father's presence, and his father's work through prayer. He communed and fellowship with his father in prayer. When you look at your prayer life and you read about this moment, do you find a little, little bit of conviction? Like, man, I need to be purposeful, about carving out time away from distractions, away from the TV, away from family, just to talk to the King of Kings. Well, he continues his account here in Matthew by telling us about the disciples who at this point are in the middle of a raging uh, sea. If you say sea, you guys might have too big a picture. Think massive lake. You know, it's miles across, but it's not the ocean. So when they're crossing... And it's only maybe six miles at the farthest diagonal across of it. 
it's not this huge, massive, like, multi-day crossing, like crossing the Atlantic. So, so they're stuck for hours fighting a storm in a lake. But part of that's just the geography. There's huge hills surrounding it, and it can kind of just funnel the, the wind through it, and it can be intense. And so there's, there's danger of, I think, the boat sinking. There's fear because they're stuck. They're going nowhere. They're in the middle of this. And Jesus comes walking to them. And they think he's a spirit. He's a ghost. He's a phantasm. They cry out in fear. But Jesus speaks and says, I am. I, I don't want to make too much of that. But that's what the Greek literally has. I am. There's probably echoes that we're supposed to think and the disciples would have thought of without like leveraging that into the whole sermon like this is the claim that he's Yahweh. Well, here's the point then. They shouldn't be afraid because Jesus, the king of creation, is here. So Jesus rescues the weak, the hungry, in the feeding of the 5,000. Now what is he doing? He's rescuing the helpless. They spend hours trying to get out of this lake. They're sitting there at the mercy of a storm, totally helpless and afraid. You ever been there? I've never had a diagnosis of cancer, but I can only imagine what it's like to have a family member diagnosed with cancer and have the doctor not say, there's hope, but say, you have months or weeks. And so you, you fight for more hope. You think, I'll get a second opinion. And so you go and talk to another doctor. And the other doctor says, well, actually, that was probably a little bit ambitious. You actually have less than you thought. And hope vanishes, and you are helpless. That feeling of despair, of unable or, or lack of ability to rescue yourself and help yourself. That's where the disciples are, and Jesus comes to them. And we all love Peter because Peter just represents us so well, doesn't he? So the other apostles are pretty quiet. We don't know what's going on in their minds and hearts. Peter's always showing us insight into the us moments. Where's Peter at right now mentally? As soon as he knows it's Jesus, he says, if it's who you say you are, I want to do this walking on water thing. <laughs> I'm sure there's a couple eye rolls in the boat like, seriously, Peter? Let's just get out of this thing. So Peter, like, even this, like, can you imagine the crisis of faith Peter's feeling like? You ever said something dumb? And then, like, you're kind of stuck? Like, let me come out to you. Yeah, okay, come on out, Peter. Oh. <laughs> like, going over the side of the boat, looking down at the water, and taking that first step, like, clinging to the boat, but, like, that first step is there, and then you let go? Can you imagine the terror filling that man who his whole life knows that that's death to let go? He begins to walk to Jesus. The Bible says he saw the wind. I don't think the point is he saw wind. I think that's just a metaphor for the whole storm. Waves capped with white blowing, the storm raging. And he begins to sink because he begins to doubt. What's interesting is I think we have a clear theological point Jesus makes. Fear is contrary to faith. Right? The Bible says Peter was afraid. What does Jesus say about it? Oh, you of little, why did you doubt? So what was really happening as Peter sees the storm is he began to imagine that Jesus' arms were not strong enough to hold him up. 
that the shield against the wind and the waves was going to get broken by the storm. That Jesus was somehow inadequate to keep him protected. Jesus sees this not as, wow, you saw the storm was really strong. He sees this as, you thought I was really weak. Fear is an indictment against our king. That he is not enough to protect. Boy, that had to be hard for Peter when Jesus says, why did you doubt? You want to put into words, Peter, what you were thinking about my strength? You want to tell me to my face that you didn't think I could protect you from the storm? You saw me walk across the water. I held you up in the water. And by this point now in the boat, where's the storm? When you want to talk about like demonstration of power, Jesus walks on water. Peter walks on water. As they clamber back into the boat, the, wo- the wind, the storm, the waves. Just quiet. Look at the end of the passage here. Look down in verse 31, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, took a hold of him and saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It was probably one of those sweet, terrifying moments where the power of Jesus is preached in the silence. Jesus shows his power to rescue the helpless. Again, if we're thinking in the garden, nature is cursed to be in hostile opposition to man. What does Jesus show about his power to break the curse here? Not only can he provide food where the ground has not given it, now he can stop the storms of nature without even a word. Water is no threat to him. We may miss this, but for the Jewish person, often water is used as a demonstration of helpless, chaotic power or something we are helpless to stop. So, for instance, you look in Job. Job 38 says, Who has shut the doors of the sea and kept it from bursting forth from the womb? The answer is God alone. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck and I sink in the deep mire. There is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Again and again, the Psalms, even Psalm 46 this morning, the, the waves crash into him, but I will not be afraid because God is my fortress. Psalm 144, stretch out your hand from on high and rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. It's an expression speaking to the foreign armies that surround the king. It's like I'm surrounded. I'm up to my neck in this flood of Gentile armies. And Jesus shows that not only is it God the Father who has the power of creation, but this power over all of nature and all of creation has been granted to Jesus, the King of kings. And he rescues his disciples. He protects them. And he preaches to them the the essential gateway to grace is faith. Did Peter walk on water because he had big feet that floated? Did Peter walk on water because he was amazing? Did Peter walk on water because he was light as a feather? Why did Peter walk on water? Because Jesus held him up. And why did he sink? Because he lost his faith in Jesus to hold him. Jesus preaches to us that the gateway to grace is faith. Not our competency. Not our goodness. Not our righteousness. Not our effort. The gateway to grace is faith. 
And the king opens it wide to all who believe. That's the message preached. And what can this king give to you? He rescues the hungry. He rescues the helpless. Look down in verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. Those are good friends. Did you catch that? They see Jesus and they say, I know someone who needs you. I know someone who can use you. I know someone who's sick and broken and hurting and they need to meet Jesus. So they bring them all Verse 36, and implored Jesus that he might only, or implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. You have a couple alls in that passage. They recognized him, they sent all, they brought him all that were sick, and as many as touched him were healed. I don't think Jesus was exhausted by healing anyone. I don't think he's like, hey, hold on, I need to refuel here. What was the limit on healing in Gennesaret here? They just had to come. They just had to reach out. And they didn't even have to touch him. Just touch the fringe of his garment. Now don't make any mistake. Jesus individually, purposefully, miraculously healed each one of them. It's not as though he's just this like magnetic power flow of healing work where like if you just get close, the force heals you. Jesus Christ deliberately, purposefully, and intellectually knew and gave healing grace to each and every person who touched his garment. That is how the grace of God flows. God is never just randomly giving grace without knowing it. It's not like there's a buffet table, he sets up and walks away, and whoever grabs stuff is good. No, every ounce of grace that you have ever received is by the intent and purpose of God in response to your faith, or in response to the common grace that he gives to all men that is always purchased and anchored to the work of Christ. So Jesus not only rescues the helpless from nature's curse, I think we at least see here, and let me say it again. Every sickness, every disease, every ailment, every wound is simply the whisper that you deserve death. This world, the first world nations, for the first time in decades, have felt that fear. That if the Lord so wishes, we are totally helpless before a sweeping virus. I mean, if COVID were in fact always and certifiably a death bringer, how many of you would no longer be with us? I would be gone. Many of you would be gone too. The only reason you're not gone is because God was gracious to us. And in fact, the virus does not kill all of us. But science, with all of its power and all of the money we threw at it, could not keep it from spreading. And so we have cancers, we have HIV, we have other diseases that we are managing, but we cannot stop. 
there will be more because we are helpless before the curse. We have yet to stop death. It comes for everyone who's ever been born. And we jokingly make things like this to make light of it, but also make the point that we despise taxes. There are two things certain in life, death and taxes. But I think we kind of view that as a diversion because if we just stopped at death, it's true, sobering, and we want to close our eyes and ignore it. If I just said there's one thing true in life, death. You're like, man, that guy's a sick puppy. Just stop it. Just like, turn away. Stop talking about death. But can you see the sweetness of this passage? Who was healed? And why were they healed? Jesus was showing, as he does in other miracles, in fact, probably the one that most clearly preaches this type of moment is when Jesus is, is speaking and ministering in Capernaum, and through the roof, a man is lowered by his friends in front of him. And he tells that man, rise, take up your bed and walk. But he doesn't do that first. What does he first do? He first tells that man, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone in the room, because this is how we kind of are, everyone in the room is like, wait, hold on a second. You need to heal him. You know what Jesus is probably thinking that moment? I did something so much better than letting him walk. I forgave him. Something that costs so much more. Something that requires so much more power to do. He washed his sins away. But he says, I'll do this so that you know I have the power to forgive sins. He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. When Jesus is healing here, he is telling us, I can reverse the curse. I can take away the curse that, that is coming for you. The whisper of your sins, ultimate penalty, is in every moment of frailty of your life. And it's coming, and I can heal and rescue. This is what Jesus preaches so why would, why would Matthew collect these accounts and give them to us? Is it just so we stand back and like, man, Jesus is cool? Is it so that we might be a little bit jealous and have some insight into the disciples and think, it would have been so fun to watch Jesus pray and just keep breaking bread and fish and multiply for thousands? you got to be honest, that would have been really cool. Would you have rather been there or the walking on water moment? Is it so that we can have conversations like that, or is God preaching to us something bigger? I want you to come to chapter 16 with me. Because I think there's much more going on theologically in Matthew's purpose for these. My daughter has learned to make cookies, and I love them. I think I had three or four last night. I came home and wanted more, and they said they were gone. They didn't have any, so maybe I had more than four, but every once in a while, Usually not with my daughter's cooking, but with other people who don't cook as good. I'll take a bite of a cookie and get a clump of baking soda. You ever had that moment? It's like they didn't mix their ingredients good enough. And you take this warm chocolate chip cookie that promises goodness. And it delivers bitterness and grossness. My fear with Jesus Christ is that theologically and culturally, 
we have taken and divided what it means to be a king. And we're left with neither sweetness nor goodness. Because you can get neither unless you embrace the whole Christ. So we come to chapter 16. Why don't you look down at verse 24. I'm going to kind of punch an imperative here. An imperative is a command force type of word. So like when I tell um, one of my children, clean your room, <clears throat> neither me or my child is under the impression that that's a, just a suggestion or random word shooting out of my mouth. There's command force behind it, go clean your room. So that, that's the same idea here. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, we would say words like, if anyone wants to be saved. That's what we'd be thinking, kind of our, our current modern lingo. If anyone wants to be forgiven from their sins, we might think. Let him, now hear the command words, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Three commands. These are audacious commands. Just consider what he means in something like deny himself. If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be rescued and have eternal life, if you want to be saved and go to heaven, here's what you must do. You must what? Command. Deny yourself. So now you're in the battle like, I want to be forgiven, but I want to live my way. And Jesus is saying you can't do both. You cannot both be rescued from sin while still pursuing your sinful way. You must submit to the king by denying the pursuit of what you want and instead choosing to pursue what he wants. That's what it means to deny yourself. But he doesn't stop there. He like presses on. He must deny himself so you no longer pursue your first agenda. You pursue Christ as your first agenda and take up his cross. What do you do with crosses in the Roman Empire? You kill people on them. It might be like, put a noose around your neck. Or strap yourself in the electric chair. Those would be like the ways we do it in our culture. For him, it was take up your cross. That is, choose to purposefully die for the cause. And do what? And follow me. This is what it means to be a Christian and a disciple. We come to Matthew 28. You're going to see that word disciple again. I'm going to read 19 and 20, and then I'm going to go back to verse 18. Look at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of whom? All nations. Now, recognize that's a huge, huge thing. It's no longer limited to just Israel and Jewish people. It is the whole of the world, all nations. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now listen here in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I command. Think of the word observe as obey. Obey everything that Jesus commands. This is a radical imposition on all people. Jesus Christ basically has told them this. You must go into all the nations, all the worlds, all the people who don't know anything about me, tell them about me, and then say they must obey everything I tell them. 
Jesus is unapologetic about that demand. I mean, have you ever, like as a boss or leader or manager, had the opportunity to awkwardly tell someone else what to do when you didn't feel like you probably should? Like, hey, would you mind not doing that? Like, it's really hard to tell someone to do something when you don't feel like you have the authority to do it. Here, Jesus unblushingly demands that all of his followers pursue the nations, commanding them to obey how much? All of it. Why don't you come back to verse 18? Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Jesus calls us to be disciples, to take up our cross, to follow him, to deny ourselves, when he tells us to go and tell all the nations to obey him in all things, Matthew has gone to great pains to show us that that claim of all authority was validated repeatedly in the life and the ministry of Jesus. He has all authority over every sickness, every disease, every wave, every wind, every boat, every foot on water, every dead salted fish, every barley loaf, every hungry stomach. Jesus has all authority. And if he sends his people out into the nations, he promises to be with them. I think that's the point. Is Matthew is building a case that Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the curse breaker. He is the rescuer. And so we must go into all the nations and preach because there's one king, one rescuer who demands obedience in all things. But he promises his people, I have authority. Look at how verse 20 ends. And see the sweetness of the power and authority because it doesn't just mean you must obey. Behold, I am what? I'm what? With you. I'm with you. If you're Peter and Jesus tells you at the end of his ministry as he's leaving, Peter, I will be with you. Do you think that he's remembering moments of walking on water and thinking, he will still be with me. I will go to the nations, but I I will go with a storm-canceling king. I will go with the one who can give me food in the desert. I will go with the one that can heal if I just touch him and he is with me. The massive demand to his disciples to risk life, to go to the nations, comes with the promise of the presence and grace of the King of Kings. The reason Matthew spends all of this time exalting Jesus isn't just for worship, but to embolden his people that the King of Kings is with us. And what does the King of Kings do? He breaks the curse. He feeds the hungry. He rescues the helpless. And he redeems us from sickness and death. And then he says, I am with you. So maybe we could ask the question, so why then are you afraid? 
Fear is crippling. Have you ever had a conversation that's kind of awkward? Maybe you're going to confront someone on something they've done wrong, and you're held back by fear. Have you ever had a, a good idea, and you're held back by fear because you're don't, not wanting to risk time, energy, or money? Have you ever had a neighbor you want to talk to about Jesus Christ, and you're held back by fear? Have you ever had a conversation where you, you want to say something, but you're afraid to? Maybe God is calling some of you to the mission field, but you're afraid. Maybe God is calling you to deep sacrifices financially, but you're afraid of the cost. Perhaps you're worried that if the Lord asks you to be kind and gentle to your spouse, they will take advantage of you. Perhaps you're afraid that if you give up sexual sin, that you'll be unsatisfied and hurting. And Jesus is telling us that he breaks the curse and he is king. And we so often try to do this in our world. We try to take the good and ignore the bad. So we have all of these really sweet diet foods that promise to taste good but not make you fat. We all want a job that pays a lot but doesn't make us work. We all want children that are a joy and fun but never disobey. We want cars that will drive great, but be cheap. I mean, we, we want good stuff, but we want to separate it from the cost. And if we do that with Jesus, we get him not at all. Jesus says, I'm with you. And he promises the grace of turning back the curse on all who come to him, who follow him, who take up their cross and pursue him and deny themselves and we in our country have taken the gospel and we're separating the baking soda from everything else and we're delivering what we promise is a sweet cookie, but it is going to be a bitter disappointment when they meet Jesus. You cannot be saved and not deny yourself. You cannot be saved and not take up your cross. You cannot be saved and keep on disobeying Jesus. So why are you afraid? Why are you afraid to do that? And I'm speaking to mostly Christians. And I'm talking to you. Why are you not living fully obedient? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that following Jesus will cost you too much? So if you are, think about this passage. Is there anything in your life that's hurting you or at which your risk in which Jesus does not declare, I am king over that. And if that's the case, every cost, every hurt, everything that Jesus filters into your life is because he lets it. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000, the word used to describe Jesus' heart to the hungry? He had compassion. Do you think Jesus asks you to pay for anything over which he doesn't have compassion for your suffering? He does. Every ounce of pain, every moment of self-denial is something over which Jesus has compassion for his people on. And so if through the filters of his compassion, he lets difficulty come, why would we ever say no? Because he could feed, rescue, save, but if he chooses not to, 
then here's what he would say about himself. I lay my life down. He starts that by saying, I have authority to lay my life down and to take it up again. Jesus was king of kings. No one killed him without first getting permission from him. And so any suffering in your life is by his permission. So follow him because he's king of kings. He breaks the curse. He rescues the helpless. He feeds the hungry so that his disciples can be emboldened to pursue the will of the king and not fear what man can do, what nature can do, what life will bring. Because when they're in the king's service pursuing the king's goal, he promises this, I will be with you as he sends us out. In our personal lives, pursue holiness. In our social lives with our neighbors, pursue their grace by speaking to them of the king of kings. Pray and ask God for the grace of following Jesus in everything. Because your king is with you. Sometimes obedience is the most terrifying thing you'll face. And Jesus says, I am with you. And if he can feed 5,000, he can walk on water and getting into a boat, he can stop a storm without saying a word. And he can heal people who just touch his clothes. There's nothing that will ever touch you that your good king doesn't call to you by his goodness. Do you trust him? Maybe I could just say it this way. If you want grace to be rescued from danger, to be rescued from temptation, to be rescued from sickness or temptation, then first by faith ask for the grace to follow Jesus. Because when you follow Jesus, he says, I am with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just amazing heroic king we have. The sweetness of his heart to love the hurting, to not send them off into the villages and towns, but instead take time to teach his disciples and teach the crowds that he can feed the hungry. He didn't need to, but he was kind and compassionate to do so. Father, thank you for your son's sweet preaching as he walks on water and calms a storm that we never have need to fear. Rather, we need to respond by faith to open up the gateway to grace. Father, thank you for the healing ministry of Jesus that teaches that all who come to him, all who are with him, are recipients of his divine mercies. Father, thank you that you remind us that nothing can stop King Jesus from being good to his people. So help us, Father, have the courage, the faith, the determination by your spirit, to follow him whenever, wherever, and however he asks so that we might glorify our king in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen.